and welcome to Money Matters. I'm Jim Butler with Markham Wealth. My co-host tonight is Ken Jordan with Brown Point Mortgage. Welcome, Ken. Hi, Jim. How are you? Great. So we have a really good show uh, again uh, this afternoon. Uh, so why don't we jump right in and uh, talk Let's about a couple of, uh, I believe, relevant topics. Uh, you spend a fair amount of time in the real estate business, residential real estate. Uh, so uh, can you give us a feel for uh, how things turned out last year, 2021 being obviously very strong, uh, and then the outlook as we move into 22? Sure, sure. So yeah, 2021 did finish strong, uh, as expected. Um, inventory remained low throughout the course of the year. Uh, and inventory is still low. I think that um, the difference between 2022 and 2021 is that we are now into 2022. We are starting to see what many believe to be what was expected at some point, which is uh, upward pressure on interest rates. And I'll tell you, Jim, I'm curious to see how the upward pressure on interest rates is going to impact the number of buyers you know, that are out there that, of course, interest rates going to impact affordability. Um, and affordability is going to impact the number of people out there looking. So um, so it's going to be an interesting year. I, one of the benefits of being in my business, I get to talk to a lot of real estate agents. And mm -hmm. one of the things that is consistent among all of them is um, inventory is still low. You know, the, 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 the demand is still outpacing the supply. And what happens when, this, uh, when the demand outpaces the supply, you know, prices go up. So they are expecting some more appreciation through this year, maybe not at the same level that we've seen over the last two years. But uh, but it's it's still a it's still a seller's market. And it's still it's still pretty crazy out there. Ken, are there certain uh, segments of the market that are stronger than the others? In other words, uh, can you pinpoint it to home values between something like 250,000 to 500,000? And then once you get to a certain level, things taper off a little bit. How would you look at that? I think that over the last couple of years, all price points, uh, entry level price points, buy up, we call buy up price points, second home price points, investment property price points, all of those price points have gone up. They've all appreciated. They've all benefited from the appreciation. I do think that geographically speaking, we've seen mm -hmm. some areas appreciate far more rapidly than others, you know? Um, with the pandemic, we've saw we've seen uh, folks working from home, and if you can work from home, you can work from anywhere, right? That's what you hear. So if you can work from anywhere, why not work from your beach house? Why not work from your condo in Florida? Why not work from you know a nice area? So what we did see, I think we saw the uh, property values uh, increase in in some of those uh, resort areas, so to speak, a little more rapidly. But um, but in in some in, even in some metropolitan markets, which was interesting because, again, you know, through the pandemic, there was a lot of uncertainty about health and safety. And you thought you might see an exodus from the metropolitan. And, and you, you have. We, we did see a, a population decline in a lot, of, a lot of cities, but property values have still gone up. You know, so um, uh, certainly some uh, geographically speaking, some properties have gone up more rapidly than others. But overall, it's pretty safe to say property values have increased in all price points. So what would cause the curve to change? So if demand is so strong and the supply is weak, causing the imbalance that you mentioned, at some point that has to change. Now, 
Ideally, it would just be a gradual slowdown. Do you Ideally. see that? And if so, when do you see that happening? Best guess. Tough question, right? So it is a guess. <laughs> uh, my crystal ball is in the shop. So, um, <laughs> but so, so a couple things that we need to consider. One is the rising interest rate environment. You know, um, we did see interest rates increase from the third quarter of last year through just this week, uh, almost a full percent from the high from the high twos to the high threes on a thirty-year term, and that's going to impact borrowability. You know, it's going to impact someone who could afford maybe a three hundred thousand dollars house last year in the third quarter never found one, interest rates went up, maybe they can only afford a $275,000 house. Well, that's going to take away from the demand. The other thing that I think is interesting, and a lot of people are not talking about this, is student loans. Um, student loans have been in deferment for almost 18 months. Federal deferment, pandemic deferment over the last 18 months. Uh, you didn't even have to apply for deferment. You were given automatic deferment. There's some folks out there with some pretty substantial student loans that are not having to pay them. If and when that deferment ends, I think you're going to see, you're going to have to see some some liquidity exit. You know the 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 the, the economy. Um, you know household income, real household income, is going to have to start paying those student loans back. With that, savings rates will probably drop. Down payment rates will probably drop, and I think that that will. Uh, decrease the supply. Uh, that, that'll decrease the number of buyers out there as well. But uh, but there's no way to really tell. Uh, I think that what we will see is a sloping, you know, a leveling off of appreciation rates, hoping that we don't see, you know, uh, a, a major correction. But what do we know, Jim? Corrections are a fact of life, aren't they? Sure, they are. And one of the other uh, unknowns in this has to do with the uh, labor market. Uh, you know, there's two kind of two pieces to the labor market. One, you have the non-payroll, uh, non uh, uh, non-farm payrolls, uh, which have been kind of chugging along a little bit under expectations. But then you have civilian uh, workforce uh, payrolls uh, uh, expanding quite a bit. And that's the small business uh, uh, person or the entrepreneur breaking off on their own. So uh, while a lot of us have experienced labor shortages from, you know, maybe the local gyms that we attend to restaurants and any number of places. Uh, but at some point, uh, people need to get back to work. At some point, the stimulus that's in the market will dry up. And with people back to work, I would imagine that will continue to provide some of that demand that has uh, really driven the uh, real estate market. It's very possible. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the labor pool is important. Um, I think that what we're, what's an interesting thing we're seeing is that some uh, companies are getting back to the office and the work from home environment is starting to decrease. And we're seeing some folks that don't want to go back to an office. I think we're going to see a lot of shifts in how people do business. But uh, some people, a lot of people are going to be switching industries, switching jobs to suit, you know, what lifestyle works best for them. Shall we move to the question? Sure, let's do it. So uh, we have uh, a listener, Dan Morris, has written in asking about how do interest rates differ between investment and personal loans? It's a great question. Uh, a timely question, too, Dan. So the difference between an investment property, we use the term non-owner occupied, which means the person who's borrowing the money is not living in the property. Um, 
And then, of course, person loans, well, I'm sure what you mean is primary residence loans. The differences between the primary residence mortgages and the non-owner occupied or investment property mortgages primarily are down payment. Non-owner occupied properties require a much larger down payment, 20 to 25%. And they can be even costly. The difference between a 20% and a 25%, um, the 20% down payment has something called a loan level price adjustment that's a little bit higher than the down payment uh, that 25% down on an investment property, the loan level price adjustments are a little bit lower. With a primary residence, you can go down to as low as 5% down, 3% down for first time buyers. And the interest rates are typically better. Now, what we've learned recently is that the second home market is about to take on a whole new look. Interest rates are what we call loan level price adjustments in the second home market are going to increase in February substantially. A 90% LTV, or let's say 10% down on a second home, used to have a loan level price adjustment of a quarter of a point, meaning the same interest rate as a primary residence, plus you'd have to pay a quarter of a point. One point is 1% of the loan amount in fees. That jumps to 4.125% from 0.25% in February. So the second home market is uh, is in it, basically we're, we're in for a pretty big price hit for second homes come the, the end of the first quarter going forward. And, uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the, uh, in the, the second home markets, like in our area, we're talking about, you know, beach houses and whatnot, you're going to see a pretty substantial uh, increase in those costs. So it almost seems like in the first six months of, of this year, uh, we're really going to see it uh, most likely see a change in the activity level in part because of what you just said. We could. I think that ultimately people who purchase second homes have the wherewithal and the resources to absorb that kind of a price hit, but they're not going to be happy about it. Right. Right. Great. Good. Thank you, Ken. And if you have a question that you'd like our panel to answer, uh, please send in and we'll do our best. And here's how you do that. You can have your questions answered on Money Matters. Please go to our website, money-matterstv.com. On our homepage, click on the banner on the right that says, Send Us Your Questions. While you're on our website, you can find information about our hosts and guests, as well as show notes and links about this show and past shows. Money Matters is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to Money Matters while you're on the go. That website address, again, is money, M-O-N-E-Y, dash matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, tv.com. So we have a really interesting guest uh, today, uh, Jeff Watkinson of Watkinson Capital Advisors. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. You bet. Well, you're in a segment of the market that people have heard of, uh, but not everyone has participated in. And with our comments earlier about interest rates, uh, I think you'll be able to certainly shed some light on that in your specific area. And that has to do with municipal bonds. And uh, why don't we start out just as, as it's kind of to lay the groundwork uh, give us a brief understanding of what is a municipal bond, how big the market is, and how do investors uh, get involved? 
Absolutely. Uh, municipal bonds provide financing for state and local governments. The city of Philadelphia, Radnor Township, Chester County. Um, municipal bonds also provide financing for essential services that serve the public. We're talking about hospitals, highways, community colleges, water, sewer, uh, bridges, tunnels, tolls. Uh, these all serve the public good. There's a, the municipal bond market is about $4 trillion and investors like municipal bonds because they're safe, they're predictable, and the interest that an investor receives is usually exempt from federal taxes. So tax-free income is a big draw. Jeff, who, who typically, uh, first of all, welcome. Uh, thanks, thanks, Ken. Who, who typically uh, purchases municipal bonds? What kind of an investor has a municipal bonds in their, in their mix? Well, not only are there investors who have sacrificed and saved their entire life and they're in retirement or approaching retirement, those are the most of the investors we see, people who wish to stay rich. Um, this is not get rich, but we're also seeing more younger entrepreneurs who have had a liquidity event, have uh, sold their company. Uh, we've seen more people who've made quick money in uh, crypto. Um, and we've also seen people who they remember 2008 and what happened with the stock market in 2008, 2009. And they've had substantial gains and they're banking some of their gains and looking at municipal bonds as a safe, non-correlated asset to stocks. Jeff, are there mistakes, however, that investors can make as they enter the municipal bond market? Yeah, there's some common mistakes that people make and one is trying to time the market okay. and we were talking about you guys were talking about interest rates earlier and you know ever since the financial crisis of 2008 2009 the federal reserve has kept interest rates low and a lot of municipal bond investors are said to us back in 2010 2011 hey i'm gonna wait till rates rise I'm going to keep my money in a money market or a savings account earning very, very low interest rates. I'm going to wait. And here we are in 2022 and the 10 year treasury is at a 175. I mean, rates really have not recovered in 10 years. And these investors, they'll never be able to reclaim that interest they would have earned. You know, the opportunity cost was lost by waiting and successful investors they buy investment grade bonds when their bonds are called or mature or mature or the coupons are paid they look go out into the marketplace and stay in the market um, another mistake individual investors make is headline risk watching the news watching cnbc overreacting, um, not understanding the marketplace, uh, rushing, rushing towards the exits. Municipal bond investors are a skittish group, and that's a mistake that investors make. 
Um, I think the last one would be reaching for yield, buying non-rated bonds, buying high mm -hmm. yield, uh, not being adequately compensated for the risks they're taking. Uh, investment grade bonds are extremely safe. And uh, I would say reaching for yield. That's a, that's a brings me to my question. You know, you said they're safe, um, but nothing's guaranteed, right? I mean, there has to be some risk. Can, can, can people actually lose money chasing yield? Tell me how that works. That's a great question. Um, municipal bonds are considered the second safest asset class behind mm -hmm. U.S. Treasuries. Um, you think about the George Washington Bridge. I mean, if you think cars are going to stop driving over the George Washington Bridge, I mean, if they need money, what are they going to do? They're going to raise the toll. Um, there's a great stat here, which I'm going to read to you, but it talks about cumulative default rates, investment grade bonds. So let's start with corporate bonds. You have an investment grade corporate bond from 1970 to 2016, the average you know, default rate for investment grade corporates was 2.36%. Those are for corporations. For municipals, investment grade municipals, same time period, 0.09%. Wow. That's not even one-tenth of 1%. We tell our clients, if you have an investment grade municipal bond, you could go into a coma for 10 years. And when you woke up from your coma, you'd have the interest that you, you're entitled to. And if the bond had a maturity date, you'd have your principal back. So Jeff, there's different ways, of course, to invest in securities, debt securities specifically. So uh, do you, well, let me, let me rephrase that. What are the different ways, whether it's an individual bond or through some uh, form of a mutual fund, and do you recommend one over another? Uh, great question. Thank you. Um, doing municipal bonds, investing in municipal bonds can be a do-it-yourself project. You can do it on your own. Um, you can also use a large asset manager like our $9 trillion neighbor here in Malvern. <laughs> um, you can use that ETF. Vanguard? That would be Vanguard. <laughs> Uh, you can use an, an ETF or a mutual fund, um, or we're in the business of separately managed accounts where an individual will have a portfolio of individual municipal bonds. Um, there's pluses and minuses to each. Uh, some of the it's a tricky market because you know there there are pitfalls and advantages to using mutual funds or ETFs. Uh, some of the advantages are with a little bit of money, you have a lot of diversification with a mutual fund or ETF. You have access to a professional manager. Um, but the bad news is you're in the same boat with tens of thousands of other investors. And sometimes their decisions can impact your money. Um, like we saw in March of 2020 with the pandemic, a lot of money headed for the exit, tried to sell, and the, and the municipal bond market could not absorb that selling pressure. 
and there were fire sale prices, and that can impact an investor in a mutual fund or ETF. You know, we recommend if you own a, if you have a certain amount of money, if you have over two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars, definitely look at hiring a professional to buy you individual bonds. Um, the other pitfall of mutual funds and ETFs, there's no, they're infinite maturities. You buy individual bonds, you know that on a certain date, you're getting your money back. Right. There's a now, finite maturity. And uh, a lot of our investors are comforted by that fact alone. Jeff, one of the things that I, I, I was, you look at the, you know, debt, that's a big thing for, for the federal government as well as local municipalities. How does a, a municipality's debt load impact the risk of their municipal bond? You know, in in is it is it similar to the way the deficit impacts treasury bonds? It, that's a good question. Um, you know, we're thirty trillion dollars in debt right now, our federal government, and you know, there's there's two types of municipal bonds. There's GO general obligation bonds. And you think about the city of Philadelphia, um, it's taxing their citizens. Um, if they need more money, if the, the budget gets too big, they need to tax their citizens. Well, if they tax them too much, people are going to leave. Um, so there's a balance there. People can vote with their feet and leave. Um, there's also, uh, you know, revenue bonds. That's like the tolls to go over the bridge. Um, or the highway on the, uh, you know, the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It's a toll road. You said earlier, um, Ken, talking about su supply, uh, demand outstripping supply. That's the same situation in municipal bond land. The supply is very steady. It's not growing rapidly, but there's huge demand for tax-free municipal bonds. And there's not enough supply for all the demand. There's there's deals going on the last two years for new municipal bonds that are 5, 10, 15 times oversubscribed. There's a wow. billion dollar deal. There's 10, 12 billion dollars worth of orders. Um, and these municipalities, these state and local governments, they've been very conservative um, over the last 10 or 15 years in issuing new debt. Um, so that's that's the dynamic of the market today. So Jeff, take a new investor, somebody who doesn't have the quite the experience or understanding of some of the points that you've mentioned, but somebody who's newer to uh, the municipal bond market. Are there certain aspects uh, that you would start the conversation with to help them understand what their options are and how to invest? Um, you know, I would, I would really bring it down to a 30,000 foot level. You think about the water you drink, uh, the highway you drive on. Um, I would remind people that this is their stay rich money. Uh, I would compare these rates to a five-year treasury or a 10-year treasury. Uh, I would explore the alternatives to what a municipal bond can provide for their portfolio. I would recommend they look at 
bankrate.com and compare CD rates. And I would say, well, this is what you can earn with an investment grade municipal bond. And this is how it can benefit you. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary marketplace. Um, there's a ton of securities. There's a ton of different disclosures. Um, and there's, it's a very nuanced marketplace. Sometimes these bonds don't trade for days, weeks, months at a time. Uh, it's not like buying a hundred shares of Microsoft or buying a hundred shares of Apple. Uh, and it, buying bonds can be tricky. I mean, what's the right price for this bond? Um, and selling bonds can be tricky. Oh my gosh, I want to buy a shore home. This bond hasn't traded in three months. This was the last price it traded at. How's the market changed in three months? Was the price three months ago good or bad? Uh, it's a pretty nuanced uh, marketplace and uh, there's a lot of structural inefficiencies in the marketplace that we as a firm educate our clients on and take advantage of. So you would want to make them aware of those nuances before they invest so that they can partition that segment of their portfolio kind of with those expectations, it sounds like. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Jeff, the you used the, you said tax-free. This is just a, a general question. Are all municipal bonds tax-free or is there a difference between tax-free municipal bonds and, and taxable, I guess, for lack of a better word, municipal bonds? That's a great question. Um, over the last three years, the market has evolved tremendously. Um, most municipal bonds are tax exempt. So if you're a Pennsylvania resident and you buy a Philadelphia Housing Authority bond, um, the interest you'll receive is tax, you know, federally tax exempt, state and local, you know, triple tax exempt. Um, there are also taxable municipal bonds. Um, that's a whole, it's a very, taxable municipal bonds are not, obviously not tax exempt. The interest is taxable. It's a fascinating asset class. And that's great for someone who has qualified money. They have an IRA. Um, they have uh, a qualified account where taxes are deferred um, or tax-free. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So do you, do you uh, blend the two in, in, a, in a particular portfolio? In other words, could you have a client who has both uh, taxable munis and tax-free municipals? Uh, we usually use the taxable munis just for someone in like an IRA. Instead of buying a bond fund um, or a bond ETF, people want individual maturities. We'll use taxables in an IRA. Um, for a non-qualified account, a uh, regular brokerage account, which is taxable, we would lean strongly towards tax-exempt municipal bonds. Right, right. right. Um, so it sounds like the municipal bond market is similar to, well, very well situated for a long-term investor so that when they buy an individual bond that they hold to maturity, benefit from the interest that they're receiving, ideally tax-free as you point out, and don't worry about the fluctuations between now and maturity. Is that fair? Absolutely. When you buy that bond, you will have a yield to maturity. 
The price of that bond will fluctuate due to buying, selling pressures, due to interest rate movements. But you know on a certain date, you will get the interest you're entitled to and you will get your principal back. Great. Jeff, thank you. Uh, we've run out of time and uh, it's a great uh, uh, introduction to the municipal bond market as well as your firm. Thanks also to Ken and your insight for everything that you provided. And to our listeners, uh, Mike Krupit, who's the founder of Trajectify, uh, is a company that I'm sure you want to learn more about. Uh, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed our show this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.